love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Yasmin Salak, and we're in conversation with Nikki Ramage, who is an associate pastor at the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara. She shares about her appreciation for the Douglas Preserve, and about her connection with locals who have seen our town change over many years. We'll also hear about how public prayer requests and gratitude contribute to the health of her church community, and about the importance of hugs in difficult times. Yasmin and I had a lot of fun talking with Nikki, and we hope you enjoy our conversation as well. If you've enjoyed our show, we would really appreciate you writing a review, or even just a rating, wherever you're listening to this. We'd also love to hear from you directly on Instagram or Facebook, with any reflections on how this podcast has impacted you, guests you'd like us to interview in the future, or if you'd like to be involved further in the human family community. I'm here today with my co-host, Yasmin Salak and Reverend Nikki Ramage, who is the Associate Pastor of Adult Ministries and Spiritual Growth at Free Methodist Church, a local Christian church that's up on Cliff Drive on the Mesa. Firstly, we want to acknowledge the history of the land that we call Santa Barbara, which has been stewarded by the Chumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Shumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality in community. Reverend Ramage, can you share your preferred pronouns, how long you've lived in Santa Barbara, and what's something you love specifically about calling Santa Barbara home? Great, and no need to call me Reverend Ramage, though I appreciate it. You can just call me Nikki. Sounds good. Um, So I've been in Santa Barbara since I came for college in 2010. And so I've been here 11 years. And one of my favorite places about Santa Barbara is just the amount of beautiful walks and trails that are easily accessible. So one of my favorites is the Douglas Preserve. And then also one of my favorite things to do is play spike ball at Shoreline Park. And so, again, I love the accessibility, easy parking, and then at the same time, just incredible beauty. I know there are a lot of dogs at Douglas Preserve. Do you have a dog that you go with or? No, no pets. Yeah. And I think I probably won't have a pet unless it's a a golden doodle. The only dog I've ever fallen in love with is a golden doodle. Not my own. (laughs) Amazing. How has Santa Barbara changed over the the 11 years that you've been here? Have you noticed any kind of changes? That's a really interesting question. I'm sure Santa Barbara has changed because places obviously inevitably change. But I, the way I've perceived Santa Barbara has changed because I've changed. So at Westmont, I went to Westmont College and... I spent a lot of time on campus, which is in Montecito, uh, and looking out over Santa Barbara. And then when I graduated, I worked with adults with disabilities at an organization called Pathpoint, which is located downtown. And so living in Santa Barbara, going to college, I actually didn't know where a lot of things were or really much about the culture and kind of rhythms of the city. But the participants that I worked with are adults and they had been living in Santa Barbara for 20, 30 plus years. So they, I got to see Santa Barbara through their eyes and also go to festivals with them or learn about different aid organizations or sit for hours in the social security office. And that gave me a different view of Santa Barbara that I'm really thankful for. And then I, became a pastor at the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara two years ago. And that's just given me also a different view because we have 
congregants of all ages, and maybe they bought a house in the 70s, and they'll tell me stories of um, how they've perceived Santa Barbara changing, and getting to listen to them gives me a fuller picture of the city. And also thinking about the Thomas fire and the mudslides and women's marches and seeing people's love and care and uh, desire to protect Santa Barbara has also been interesting to both participate in and observe. Uh, So those are some initial thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a really unique opportunity with your time at Pathpoint to see Santa Barbara through the lens of people group that are probably not very represented in, in public spaces. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I would always say that was my, one of my favorite parts of the job was that they were no, a lot of the people I worked with really became known in the community and they really built relationships, whether that was through like a local coffee shop or they would know people at the post office or, They would know, yeah, just people who had been in Santa Barbara for a long time. And so I learned something from their loyalty and steadfastness and rootedness in a place because maybe they didn't have the same means to be as mobile as I have been able to be. Yeah, pre-COVID, it was pretty easy to go on weekends elsewhere. But yeah, it's always interesting to, to live in a place that most people come to for vacation because sometimes we can forget to appreciate it ourselves. But what inspired you to become a pastor? I mean, well, I'm interested to hear what your major was. You said you went to, to Westmont. I'm wondering if you were a religious studies major, were you planning on becoming a, a pastor at some point all along? Or did your work with adults with disabilities affect that decision? That's a great question. And it's a funny story. I grew up in a more conservative Christian tradition that didn't support or believe in women's ordination. So basically, I was discouraged from ever imagining becoming a pastor. And so I came in with that lens and framework when I went to Westmont. But I was in my freshman year, and I was sitting in an Old Testament class. And the professor, Tremper Longman, just made an offhand comment about a woman pastor that he knew. And it was obvious from the offhand comment that he believed that there could be women pastors. And for some reason, seeing this person who I respected just implicitly accept the validity of women pastors, it made me go to the office where I could change my major. And I changed my major that day from history and business to religious studies. And that day, I couldn't have said that I wanted to be a pastor. It hadn't fully integrated within me and it hadn't fully clicked yet. But I made the first step by changing my major. And from there, I never looked back. And in my tradition, oftentimes a pastor feels a call So they feel a call from God um, to serve the church in this particular way. And a pastor is often considered to be a shepherd who both leads and guides and protects the flock. And during my time at Westmont, I looked back on my upbringing and my participation in my youth group and realized that I loved caring for people. I loved talking with them about their faith. I loved wrestling with some of life's biggest questions. And I loved the person of Jesus. And so I had a experience, a more explicit experience of a call when I was praying. And I just felt that God was saying, this is what I have created you to do. This is who I have created you to be. And I want you to step into that with boldness and with courage. So I'm just really thankful that I get to be in this position and I don't take it for granted. And yeah, being a woman in ministry has its challenges, but it also is incredibly rewarding. 
I think that's an amazing story. I'm thinking because I feel like I also, my relationship with my faith is not just for myself, but it's also trying to improve my character and my interactions with others. So I'm wondering how your relationship with your faith changed from being a follower of the faith to becoming a leader. An interesting way that I've thought about leadership or heard conversations about leadership is that our call as Christians is to follow after Jesus. And ultimately, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a congregant, whether whoever you are, your first call is to follow after Jesus, is what we would say. And then from that is where your leadership stems from. As far as for me personally, just naturally when I would go to church or when I would experience Christianity in more public forms, I would see the pastor and I would often wonder what it would be like to be in that position because, again, I cared about the church and I cared about its integrity. I cared about its ability to live out the good news of the gospel and to be able to express that in authentic ways. And because I cared about the church, because I cared about the people who are a part of the church, because I cared about the message of Jesus, I wanted to see that done well. And again, as a maybe pretty precocious college student or high schooler, I often had ideas of how to make it better, make the church better, which since I'm very humbled to say that it's it will always be hard work for every single generation. But I think where the transition maybe came from just being a follower to being a leader is wanting to have some say in how the church embodies um, what we believe and wanting to be a part of the solution rather than just pointing out the problems and wanting to be able to commit and have accountability because I think leaders should be held to a higher standard and with that higher standard comes accountability and accountability is really helpful. So That's very admirable of you to say. Sometimes I feel like there's a lot of power in leadership and Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who take advantage of it. So to hear you talking about how much you're aware of that and how you want to do that well, and, and especially because you care about the people is really beautiful to hear. Another thing that I think about leadership in religious spaces, do you feel like your access to religious knowledge has increased? Because when I think about myself and I'm very passionate about learning more about Islam. To me, I always have felt that Islamic knowledge is accessible, but I've always found it to be valuable to meet a Muslim woman scholar because it's a new perspective on the faith. And although like in general, like everyone's teaching the same thing, it's through the lens of a different person. And because people are different, you get new ideas on how to make the faith your own and how to practice it on your own. So do you feel like becoming a pastor has made you has made it more accessible to you to get that knowledge? Or, or maybe like you said, you have more of a say now and how the church runs, at least in your community? Well, part of the requirement is more official education. So it's called seminary and it's three years and it depends on the Christian tradition, like what kind of formal education is required. So I went to a seminary called Azusa Pacific Seminary down in Los Angeles. And I found that incredibly edifying and encouraging and inspiring to be able to learn from professors who yeah have studied the scriptures have studied the history of christian thought from all over the world to learn from professors who 
who also really care about practical sides of ministry, like how does someone deepen their faith through certain spiritual practices or even through like pastoral counseling classes, which help you understand someone as they're developing or the relational problems or family history that will likely come up when you are talking with someone or they're going through struggles. So all of that I think is invaluable. At the same time, again, all of this you're getting from a very young pastor. I've been doing this full-time for two years and then have had a lot of experience before that, but I've only been in my role two years thus far. And so mostly my experience is that I have so much more to learn. And that's also really freeing because I work with two pastors on my staff. So the lead pastor is Pastor Colleen. And then Pastor Doug has also been at the church for a really long time, like 20 to 35 years, they both have been at the church. And so just getting to learn from them to see the ways that they have developed over years and years of reading and engaging and asking questions and always staying humble and always admitting their desire to learn more and always saying when they don't know something has just really left an impact on me. And it reminds me again and again how much I want to know more and how much more there is to know. But to go back to your original question, the gift of theological education is one of the biggest gifts in my life. Because I think the more you learn about your faith, the more sometimes it can speak to the hard situations that you face. And sometimes as your faith is maturing and you're maturing, you want to do that together. And education around scripture or Christian thought throughout the ages really assists with that. The Human Family podcast is very much intending to bring together people of, of different groups. Again, I mean, the point is that we're all neighbors here in the greater Santa Barbara area, and yet we know sometimes so little about each other. Or what little we do know or understand can sometimes lead us to feel some kind of tension with people that we don't know much about. And I'm really curious about the transition that happened with you, you mentioned in, in college, about moving from a, a more conservative background and a theology where it's not appropriate for women to become pastors, because that's actually what I grew up with as well. And being a man that didn't affect me the same way I'm sure that it affected you, when I was in, in high school, I was dating someone and I wasn't even comfortable with her being class president. That's how much I had a sense that it's not appropriate for women to be in leadership. And I don't know where I got that message, but I did. And I remember having that conversation and she was like, why? And I was like, I don't know. It's just not right. And I couldn't really give much of an answer. But through my time in college, I similarly had a shift. And I'm interested in hearing about that transition for you because that's a pretty big shift, especially seeing as how that shift in your beliefs has made quite an impact on, on your life's direction. I'm interested to hear about that transition within yourself and also with the community that you grew up in, because I imagine that has probably been somewhat difficult to be able to explain that and maybe not have that super well received. Yeah, Kenny, that's a really great question. When I think back to where I was at when that transformation was happening in college, what's interesting is questions had already taken hold of me in high school, maybe the end of high school, going into college. And in some sense, I was just looking for answers or for some assistance because, for instance, in my tradition, we're a branch of Christianity that gets a lot of assistance from John Wesley. So Wesleyan theology. And there's this thing called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And we use it to help us make decisions. So what's the Wesleyan quadrilateral? Basically, it's saying that when we make decisions, 
we need to include several things. So scripture is always the main foundation, the main thing that we include. But then we also include reason. So logic and science and mathematics, that's under reason. So we have scripture, foundation, then reason. Then we think about tradition. What has the church done in the past? And then we finally think about experience. What is our experience of God telling us? And what is our experience in the world? So I would say I didn't have the Wesleyan quadrilateral framework because I wasn't a Wesleyan yet. But I used scripture. I used my experience. I thought about the history of the church and I used logic to help me understand that God wanted to use and empower and equip half the church because half the church actually oftentimes 50 to well, more than half the church is comprised of women in Christianity at least. And so I just believed wholeheartedly that God has poured out his Holy Spirit, which includes spiritual gifts of teaching and preaching and shepherding and prophesying and caring and um, compassion. And God has poured out those gifts on all people, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of supposed ability, disability status. All that to say, that theology clicked with me and made sense for how I saw the world, for how I understood the world. And it actually wasn't too hard of a, tran of a transition, if that makes sense, because it really came in line with how I understood what it meant to be created in the image of God and how I understood Christianity at that point. It is interesting because I, in some sense, was shaped by two different subcultures because I was shaped by a more conservative Christian subculture at my church. But then my parents and grandparents had no kind of attachment to that culture, if that makes sense. I have a twin sister. It was always me and my sister who were dragging my parents to church. And so they, I think, would identify as Christians, but not to the same level of intensity that me and my sister do. My sister is also a pastor in, in a free Methodist church in Garden Grove. Anyways, all that to say, my parents, when me and my sister came to our call at similar times, they were more surprised because I think some of their values might have been, well, is that a really secure job? Are you going to make enough money? Some of those questions were more prominent for them. But then they have always been just supportive of what we wanted to do, so they supported us. And then as far as the home church, I ended up writing letters to people who had raised me up in that church, just explaining to them my call and my desire to be a pastor. And they responded with grace, with love, and they still disagree with with my decision to be a pastor but I respect them I care for them I love them and can see how they came to that belief through a certain understanding interpretation of scripture that's different than my interpretation and yeah so I I can understand where they're coming from and at that time which now I guess is that's eight nine years it was very painful but now I'm in a situation where Lord bless them and keep them and shine his face upon them. And I'm just kind of moving full force ahead to what God has called me to do. So, yeah, I would say at the time it was very painful. But now it also helps me see that, yeah, you can, someone can disagree with you. And it often felt like they didn't just disagree with an idea I had, they literally disagreed with me. But even in the midst of that, you can still maintain relationship, which is an important lesson to learn in our time when it's so polarized, because if you disagree about ideas, people assume you're disagreeing with who they are. And how can we separate ourselves from our ideas to a healthy extent? I definitely feel this sense of difficulty with 
theological or ideological differences, it can feel like that's the most important thing mm -hmm. between me and someone else who I know has a different way of thinking. And yet I wonder if you, like myself, see a need to be united at very least to to do good in our world and to to live the gospel out. I've I definitely started looking to more faith groups when I started to become more passionate about environmental justice. And that's something that Yasmin's also passionate about. Um, that's actually where I met Yasmin is in the Eco Faith of Santa Barbara group. In some sense, it might be hard to make relationship with no kind of foundation if you know that you have some serious ideological differences. It can be a lot easier to work side by side with someone on a project that you both really care about, whether it be addressing environmental issues or taking care of vulnerable people. And I wonder if that's been true for you at any level, as far as making relationships with those who believe differently. Well, I really love that. And I love seeing the example of that right in front of me. That's amazing. I'm <laughs> glad you guys met through that. It makes me think of being a chaplain in the jail in Santa Barbara, which I've done for a couple years now. It's very simple. I go about once a month and are basically sent to a certain unit. And then you bring a church service. So maybe you share words of encouragement from scripture. You sing some songs. You spend time in prayer and encouragement. And there are people from different faith backgrounds who are also chaplains. I wouldn't say a a ton of people from different faith backgrounds, but there are. And that has been really important to see and to welcome and to acknowledge. And then at the same token, there's so much division in Christianity itself as well. And there's so many denominations and traditions, and a lot of different traditions are represented amongst the chaplains. And also chaplains who come from churches that are primarily Latino or chaplains that come from churches in Santa Maria. And I think it's been special to be able to build relationships with them. And again, just repeating what you said, just our common goal is meeting the men and women in the jail with compassion and with love and with an invitation to new life found in faith and my tradition would be Christianity. And yeah, I think that will always hopefully be a part of my life is when involved in the community, just naturally creating those partnerships. And sadly, with COVID, we haven't been able to go into the jail. And so that's really sad. But and I guess it makes me think too of my job at back to Pathpoint, because I worked with all different types of people, both from different organizations, like nonprofit organizations or support organizations or recreation organizations. There's a lot of actually incredible resources in Santa Barbara County, which I'm sure we all know, for people with disabilities. And yeah, forging those relationships left a really big impact on me. And I can't imagine my life without hearing different voices from different types of people. And it can be hard sometimes to make sure that will continue to be a part of my life. It's so interesting that you said that you've been a chaplain at this SB jail because I actually currently work for a nonprofit called Taiba Foundation. And we also work with people in prison. And basically the purpose of the organization is we provide educational material about Islam to mm. Muslim prisoners, but also we just started a new division in the organization to also provide life skills courses. And all of the courses are through like book form. So we don't really go into the jails. Mm. But since I've worked there, I feel like my relationship with talking to people who aren't very similar to me has really changed. And one thing that I've really learned is how to talk to somebody who is different than you. And 
one thing that the concept that we value in our organization is people have so many different experiences that explain why they do what they do. Mm. But I think when it comes to talking to people with different beliefs or different values, even just people with different political beliefs, it's Mm. like the concept is certain things can explain why you believe what you believe, but they don't always excuse them. The way that I approach talking to people, for example, with different political beliefs or different values than me, just around me in free society is like, I try to go into conversations from an understanding perspective of thinking about how did they grow up and what beliefs have they grown up with? What types of influences have they had? But at the same time, it's interesting because you have to balance that and still stand up for your values because you don't want to go into the sphere of complicity and just allowing people to believe what they believe and hurt others just for the sake of agreeing with everybody. But back to working with people in prison, what I do is I I do a lot of writing letters, responding to them, grading assessments for their courses. And it's just also beautiful to see people who maybe have done actions in the past and how much they can change. And that, that also gives me hope that it is important to talk to people with different values and different beliefs because people can always change. And depending on how you present yourself and and how you express your character, they might fall in love with how you treat them. And and then they also want to be a better person. And then I also, I don't want to act like I'm the one that they're learning from. I actually learn a lot more from them. My faith has definitely strengthened just reading letters from students in prison and seeing how much they love God and how much they love Islam has really inspired me to become closer to my faith as well. Amen. Me and my sister talk about sometimes our faith makes the most sense or oftentimes makes the most sense in the context of a place like the jail because the trappings of society or of status or of power go away because, yeah, you just show up and you encounter people who have the gift of not in some sense having to prove themselves at that point and who are vulnerable and who are honest and who are seeking meaning and seeking answers to life's deepest questions and to be able to walk alongside someone who's going through that, to have someone invite you into that process is just an incredible privilege. And yeah, we talk about how a context like the jail, our faith makes sense because, yeah, because sometimes the way I view my faith is that it turns things that I would normally expect to happen, like these power structures in the world, and it just flips it upside down. And so it's important for me to be in spaces where where it seems as if things are flipped upside down and the normal rules of society or the world or the pecking order don't exist anymore because it's my firm belief that in in God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom that they wouldn't exist either. And yeah, so I, I really resonate with what you said. Yeah. And also one thing that I really value about the similarities between Christianity and Islam is how both of our faiths really emphasize taking care of the oppressed and the vulnerable. And I really do believe that, especially in the U.S., the prison population is the most vulnerable. And and that's because the abuses that happen in prisons are basically hidden away from the rest of society. And and I really do feel like faith leaders, it's their responsibility to get involved in taking care of prisoners because nobody else will. Preach. Amen. I appreciate how you've named the, a kind of a distinction between idea of charity versus solidarity. And there's one mindset that is often associated with a concept of of saviorism and this idea of I have what they need, so I'm going to go help them, which really draws a line between who I think I am and who I think they are, whoever they are. But you guys have both spoken to just the humanity of people who are incarcerated 
people who have disabilities and we say, yeah, well, of course they're, they're human, but it's sometimes it can be hard to really integrate that when we're so rarely in contact with people who have that different life situation. And I'm curious to hear, Nikki, how you navigate the relationship between seeking to meet physical needs and also having a hope to share a deeper story of faith. And that's something I've heard, I heard both of you mention is that whether you're a chaplain from a Christian background or from a Muslim background, there's absolutely an intention to meet physical needs and there's a hope to share a deeper story. And I'm, yeah, I'm interested to hear how you work with both of those and maybe they don't even seem that distinct to you, but I'm here to happy to hear. Yeah. Again, Kenny, I appreciate the way you framed that. I also appreciate your use of the term solidarity before. I really resonated with that as well. So I think it is always a balance. Sometimes it isn't easy to parse those things out. Like X is the proclamation of the gospel and B is giving someone food. I think there's a lot of overlap. There's and there should be. And so, for instance, my ministry at the jail is a lot of encouragement and prayer and giving people an, an idea that there is something more. And so maybe helping them read the Bible for the first time or because, again, when I come in, it is mostly revolved around this church service. So maybe it's helping someone understand uh, that God loves them and that they don't have to do anything to receive that love. Um, and that love is is given to them freely and, and without cost because maybe that's what a woman needs to hear or to come alongside someone and invite them. We sing praise songs. So invite them to praise God and so instead of maybe saying, this is who God is, maybe an invitation, Do you, this is someone who you can worship who has created the world. So an invitation into worship and to praise. And then something that I've been growing in or, or learning about is, again, this is more charismatic, which in Christian faith, I don't know how much I should explain or not, but in Christian you can faith- explain that. Okay, more charismatic traditions focus on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's fruits of the Spirit, which are like gentleness and patience and kindness. But then there's gifts of the Spirit, which might be speaking in tongues or speaking prophecy, which really just would be like a word from God or a word of encouragement from God, because prophecy is meant to build up and edify the church. All that to say, in the church or in the jail, exploring what it means to ask God for a good word for each of these women who are before me and ask God to speak that word to these women directly. So instead of me being like the conduit, asking God to speak and helping them believe that God wants to speak to them. So all that to say, that's one avenue. But then, so that would maybe be more direct proclamation of the gospel. But then we have a preschool at our church, which which helps in our community. There's a preschool and we also have a Zoom school during COVID time. And so one of our ministries is to just have a really excellent preschool. And they've done a, a really incredible job of serving our community in this way. And at the same time, we just want the parents to know that they're loved. We want the kids to know they're loved. We want them to be really well taken care of and to know why, yeah, to know again that God loves them. So I don't know. It's again, it's hard to parse out. It's not always one or the other. I think that it's important to reflect on, to think about those distinctions and those differences, but sometimes God, I believe that God will ask you to do something different depending on the context and the situation. That kind of makes me think about in Islam, there are, I wouldn't say just two ways to worship, but the two that stand out to me are 
one related directly to worshiping God and the other to basically respect God's creation. And mm-hmm. by doing that, you respect God and worship him. And and basically the Quran, which is our holy book, basically the verses were revealed in two major cities in Islam, in Mecca and Medina. And the first phase where the verses sent down from God to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in Mecca. And those only focused on basically the basics of who God is and how to worship him directly. But then the verses later on, when the Muslim community moved to Medina, Prophet Muhammad's followers, peace be upon him, when they moved to Medina, the verses focused more on how to conduct yourself in society and how to treat others and and basically the laws of how to give people their rights. And so I think, like you said, you can't really parse out the purpose of how you spread the faith. It's more, it's both. It's worshiping your creator, praising him, and then also treating life on earth and your space with respect and in that way you are also worshiping god and i think like when i think about prison as an example with the organization that i work with we provide the knowledge of islam through our courses but also we have services to support the prisoners with whatever they need they can reach out to us anytime if they need a letter of recommendation for us for like parole hearings we do that we help with the re-entry society when they're first released so it's both it's giving them that spiritual connection with their creator not giving, but providing the resources so that they can strengthen that and then also helping them out with their necessities of life. Yeah. I mean, the way that I frame the question initially is the difference between a physical need and maybe a spiritual need. But I think that sometimes being able to offer someone food can actually meet a spiritual need because that in itself speaks of the goodness of God moving moving through the person who's giving and through the relationship. So that can be a form of gospel proclamation, even if there are no words said. And then even on the other hand of being able to speak more directly about your particular faith tradition and and how life-giving that can be, sometimes that can actually affect someone physically to keep them moving forward in life, especially in a difficult situation like being incarcerated. I mean, I can only imagine that literal physical food is not the only food that people need um, in these situations, but we actually need for our physical health, we need something that that speaks to our spirit. So they can actually both feed the other need as well. Nikki, I'm interested to hear about maybe a tradition or a practice that's important to you that helps you to show up in the world as a Christian woman and a pastor? When I think about that question, it makes me think of a practice that we do every Sunday during our church service. And I know a lot of churches do this in various ways and to various degrees, but we have a section of our service called Praises and Prayer Requests. And I really love it because... At that time in the service, people are invited to stand and share what they want to praise God for, and then at the same time also share their requests. So maybe you have someone standing and they just won a gold medal in Special Olympics, and so they share that and you, and we praise God. Or maybe someone has just lost a family member, and so they are sharing this grief and hardship with the congregation. Or maybe someone has started a new project to bring justice in the community of Santa Barbara. And then the pastor who's presiding over that time is normally Pastor Colleen, and then she'll pray through the different prayer requests. But I think it's just a really amazing moment for the church to come together, to see one another, to be able to process also things that are going on in the world, because people will pray for elections, people will pray, and they may have different political beliefs. So it really also makes people discern 
okay, if I'm asking the church to pray for this, is this something that I really can ask the church to pray for? Or is this something just for me? And because saying you want a certain person to win the election probably isn't going to go over super well if you have people from different political parties. Does that make sense? So I really think it forces people to integrate their faith into their lives and also brings us together as a community. And I just love that practice at our church. And I think it, it just helps people get to know one another and it helps us present our requests before God in a way that's vulnerable and authentic. And another practice that we can't do right now because of COVID is we have a hug line after church. So whoever preached that day, so gave a sermon from scripture, talked about it, then they go to the end of the hall where people walk out and then they hug everyone who comes by. And obviously if someone's not comfortable with a hug, then a handshake will do. But what that does is the senior pastor, even before Colleen, would talk about the importance of touch and positive touch because we have lots of seniors who, or even people who are single who maybe have not had any type of positive touch throughout the week. And so you're talking about the physical element of spirituality. I really see the hug line as an extension of just being able to embrace someone and to make that normal and to, yeah, I just love that that's a part of the culture of our church. We haven't been able to do that because of COVID, but I'm looking forward to it when it comes back. So I think that's just encouraged me in in my faith and the embodiment of my faith and in just, yeah, how sharing together as a community can can build us up and shape the way that we understand and follow God. I really like those practices that you shared. It reminds me of one practice that we do at my mosque. So our holy day for Muslims is Friday. So we have a Friday sermon that's given and then a prayer after that. And then at the end of that, we actually automated it. So we, if people send in their prayer requests beforehand, like via email. And so at the end, like we have somebody who announces if somebody needs a prayer because somebody is sick in their family or because somebody just passed away. Those are all shared. And then all of us as a group pray for that person. And I think that's so valuable because Islam isn't just about your personal relationship with God. It's also about community support. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I, it's so like nice to hear about that hug line that you shared because for us, it's, it reminds me about how for Muslims, Friday prayer, our holy day isn't just about coming into the mosque, listening to the sermon, praying and leaving. We're encouraged to use the mosque as also a community space to mm-hmm. interact with our fellow Muslim sisters and brothers and and to greet them and to smile and amongst the women share hugs amongst the men they can share their hugs and handshakes Mm -hmm. and I think that's so valuable because like you said some people I think people who you know have families take that for granted but there are a lot of people who live life alone Mm -hmm. um, and they really need that community support and to see that people love them yeah I love that I love the similarities between those traditions when I asked the question, I, w- I was thinking more in the realm of probably like spiritual framing and how like certain practices might theologically orient us to be to show up in the world. But I really appreciate that you've brought it to a, a very physical and embodied place, especially like regarding physical touch and having a hug and how, again, that can be like a hug is not just a a hug and then it's gone like that lasts with us. And we actually physical touch can be super important for taking care of stress. I mean, we definitely live in a stressful world and to share a hug with someone can be an incredible gift. And then when you mentioned the praises and prayer requests, it made me think of at congregation B'nai B'rith, the Jewish synagogue that I attend on occasion, they have a practice of each week naming the people who have passed in the last 
month and in the last year. I think that's how they do it. Hmm. And, and when they announce the name, if that's someone who was dear to you, then you stand up. Hmm. And basically, you can look around the room and see who's still in a grieving period. And that hmm. to me is really powerful because while it may have been common in my church growing up that someone would share the death of a loved one, it wouldn't be a months or a year long noticing of that, you know? Wow, like we really want to show up for you right now, this week, next week, maybe the week after, but then it fades away. And I really appreciate that. At least at Congregation B'nai B'rith, they really say, no, like this, these are things that stick with us for a long time. And of course, we get support from many different areas when we have loved ones that pass, but a real intention about saying we want this congregation and this body to be here to support. So yeah, I really just appreciate the focus on communal support that both of you brought up. Nick, you mentioned in your bio that you uh, like to collect books and sometimes read them, which I can agree with. I can admit that I do the same thing. What books are you collecting or reading right now? Great question, because that continues to plague me. And I ask for forgiveness every day. No, I'm just joking. But so... I did collect and do plan to read a book called White Too Long, which I don't even remember the author's name, but it's in my room. It's ready to be read. And it's talking about the history of racism in the white church and how the white church should begin to and think about responding. So that's one book that is going to be read within the next couple of weeks. And then I have a couple of books by Colson Whitehead that I recently bought. So he wrote The Underground Railroad and Nickel Boys. So I read The Underground Railroad, highly recommend. Nickel Boys is on the list. And my mom gave me a, a copy of Mary Oliver's devotions. So I think some of her most popular poems. So that is on the list as well. And people have given me a book by Parker Palmer about democracy, healing the heart of democracy. So that's on my shelf. I have a huge bookshelf in my house, a bunch of bookshelves in my office, and then books in my bedroom. So all of those books are in my bedroom because I'm like, I got to read them. But, and then I think I just recently bought a book for fun, but I don't remember. Oh, I think my mom gave me, she gave me a book for fun, which I'm blanking on. So I apologize for that. All that to say, it is a struggle because I buy lots of books and I don't always read them, but also I'm getting better at reading some of them. And I also tend to choose books, sometimes choose some books when I'm leading a small group or Bible study, because then I have to read it <laughs> and it gives me accountability to make sure that I do. But yeah, but what are you all reading or what are you hoping to read or excited about reading or what did you just read? First of all, <laughs> I love all of the books that you mentioned. It's a variety of topics that sound really interesting and I guess relevant to your life. But for me, I don't know why, but I haven't read recently. I just haven't felt like I wanted to. But what I realized in the past two years is my interest in books really changed. Mm -hmm. For some reason, like right now, the only books that stand out to me are, are faith-based, to be honest. Sure. Like, can you tell I, us about them? Yeah. So, one recent one that I read, it's called With the Heart in Mind The Moral and Emotional Intelligence of the Prophet. And it's by Micah Eel Ahmed Smith. It's about social and emotional intelligence and using Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as our model about how to practice emotional and spiritual intelligence in our daily lives, like as Muslims. And I love that because I feel like sometimes 
when I learn about Islam through classes or at the mosque, it's always focused on worship and learning about what you're supposed to do instead of how you're supposed to behave in the world and how you're supposed to interact with people. And for me, I've always been fascinated about improving my communication skills and my interactions with people. So learning about that from somebody that I see as a forever role model, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a really interesting book. And I got that book as a gift actually from Taiba Foundation, the org that I work for. And we actually gave that book as a gift to some of our students in prison. And I think it's such an amazing book because it really teaches about character and and how to basically behave with others. But yeah, I don't know why I used to read books for fun. And like I used to be such a bookworm when I was younger. But now I think the only things that really catch my eye are, are faith books and I guess psychology and communication, just I am really interested at this point of my life on how to improve from within. So that's what piques my interest. So question though, do you buy, do you still buy lots of books and then end up not reading them so or, I, have, or have you developed the discipline of not even buying them in the first you, place? Yeah, I had to put a stop to buying. <laughs> I had to. So now I just tell myself for now I'm first going to check the library, then going to check of people that I know have them. And if I really want to buy a book, it has to be just one book that I will start reading. So <laughs> I, had, I had to be more disciplined and especially because I ended up recently donating a lot of my books just because I don't really need them anymore. And I some of them I didn't even end up reading. So <laughs> you are a disciplined woman. That's amazing. I try. <laughs> I I love to hear that they're unsurprisingly books that look at how to act in the world and social action based on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, because that's something that I'm so used to, but it's instead looking at the life of Jesus. And I'm so used to seeing books that talk about that. How, How do we live about in this area? Well, let's look at the life of Jesus. And so it, when you just mentioned that, I was like, Oh yeah, of course. There are books certainly that are written for lay people, Muslim people that just look at the life of the prophet too as a as a role model. I mean, we're always taught the great qualities, his great qualities, but what I loved about this book I read recently is it really in detail tells you about how to approach first your behavior in your mind and then empathy. I feel like that part of how you interact with people isn't really fully explained usually. It's usually the actions that are explained. Do this and treat, give somebody a smile, but teaching empathy is something I've never read in a book. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The two books that I'm reading right now are My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. I, I would highly recommend this book. It's all about embodied racialized trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's no walk in the park, but it's really all about looking at how we experience the world through our bodies much more than we're aware of. And we like to think that we experience the world through our minds, but our bodies have a lot to say in terms of how we react to to people that we are comfortable with and then people who we are un- uncomfortable with. There's a felt sense of that in our bodies if we are willing to notice that. So that's one and the second one that I'm just embarking on is the autobiography of Malcolm X, actually. Mm. So, yeah, this has been so fun. And I want to spend more time with both of you. To conclude, Nikki, I am in the habit of asking our guests to give us a blessing to end our time together. Mm. So as our listeners enter whatever they're doing next, would you be willing to send us out with a benediction for all of us neighbors in Santa Barbara? Definitely. God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, would you come and would you bless these people who are listening to this podcast? Would you bless them with your love, with your tenderness, with your compassion towards them? Would, that, would they know that they are seen by you, that they were created by you, and that you walk before them, you walk ahead of them, you walk behind them? And would you give them peace for today? Would you equip them to do your work in the world? 
for justice and righteousness. And would you fill them with your love? Bless them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Well, great to see you all. Yeah, Yasmin, it was so good to meet you. Yeah, it's so good to meet you. I love talking to you today. <laughs> yeah, it was so great. We should hang out sometime. I live in the Bay right now, by the way. So oh, not in SV. But I mean, now Kenny has connected us and I don't know, we can even have Zoom conversations someday. I think us three. Totally. Uh, yeah. We definitely. Ha- we have a lot to talk about. That'd be really yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, I made sure and grabbed Yasmin. The first time I, I heard her speak, it was on environmental issues and she was like on a panel and I was like, I have to talk to this person <laughs> and ask if we can go to coffee or something because I must learn more. I must learn about this person. So And we've been yeah. friends ever since. <laughs> exactly. exactly. All right. Well, have a wonderful day, you all. Thanks. All right. Bye, Bye. all. Thank you for joining us today. My favorite part of today's conversation was talking about how our faiths teach us to be in solidarity with vulnerable members in our society. Faith is about more than worshiping our creator. It is also about making the world a better place by supporting our neighbors. This was the final episode of season one of the Human Family Podcast. Please share it with your friends and family, and always feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com.